Welcome to Bringing Truth to Life. My name is Henry Clay, and we hope you enjoy this series of messages on the Reformed faith. Welcome to Lightning in the Fog, Session 4. And tonight, we are going to do Jeopardy. That is the title of our class tonight. Jeopardy, where you, of course, you get the answer, and your challenge is to guess what the question was, right? So if that's the answer, what was the question? 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Always being ready to make a defense. Does any, has anybody heard a different translation for that? A reason for the hope that's in you, or... Or an answer. So that's the word uh, uh, apologia that we get apologetics from. But always being ready to make a defense, give a reason, give an answer. Sometimes the answers the church has come up with for a question that they knew very well what the question was, years later all that's left is the answer. The tulip that we looked at, the five points of Calvinism, isn't the question, it's the answer to Arminianism. And we don't know what flower their five points formed. Uh, but our, our five points ended up spelling tulip, in English at least. So, well, I want to do a, a practice here of Jeopardy, our game of Jeopardy, before we get into the real game. But you remember the, the Nicene Creed. What's different from the Nicene Creed from the Apostles' Creed? It's longer. And that's what we say it uh, just sometimes, say it during communion. But if you look at it, and let's just see, uh, and this is a confession of faith, so I'm going to just read it. In fact, why don't we read it together, okay? And you mark, set, go. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory, to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets, and I believe one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. How long do you think it took us? One minute and 20 seconds. Seems longer, doesn't it? Now, this creed was the answer. So in our Je game of Jeopardy, uh, my question to you is, well, what was the question if this was the answer? Now look at it and see if you can tell just by looking at it what was the main issue they were trying to deal with. Which part of the Trinity they were most interested in? 
Jesus. Look, half of the whole Nicene Creed, and I don't know if you ever notice this when we say it in church, half the Nicene Creed is about Jesus. They got a little bit about God. Does that mean God's less important? No. It's that, that wasn't the question going on. That wasn't the problem they were trying, the fire they were trying to put out. So what was the problem? Does anybody know historically what the problem was they were addressing? Or what that heresy is called? Well, the, the Gnosticism was a little soon earlier than that, but I'm, I'm sure there's probably lots of that hanging over. The burning one at the, at the Nicene Council of Nicaea was Arianism, which said that Jesus uh, was the first of the created beings. That uh, that's how they misinterpreted that he is the only begotten of the Father. Well, if he's begotten, he had a beginning. And if he had a beginning, he was created. And so he's not truly God. So notice how they make a big deal about, you know, I used to wonder what's this very God of very God? You know, like fairy God of fairy God? You know, like very, you know? He's, oh, he's very God, you know? Like... <laughs> Uh, very dog, very very human. You know, it's a, a noun, so you think, well, you wouldn't normally put a very in front of a noun. You'd put it in front of an adjective. But what it means, it's, it's the old way of saying true God of true God. And that the conclusion the council came to was he was eternally begotten. There never was a time when he was not, and there never will come a time when he isn't. So we've just done Jeopardy with the Nicene Creed, okay? We had something that was the answer, and then we looked at it and said, now, uh, if we didn't know, if, if we haven't already read stuff about the Council of Nicaea, we just look at the answer they came up with, can we guess what was the question? And the question was, who is Jesus? Is he really God or not? So now we're going to the big, the double jeopardy, okay? We're going to the, the answer that the Westminster guys came up with. I can't get used to using that term divines. It just sounds so silly, but, but it was their term for theologians. So, but it is an old-timey sort of a term. Sounds like the Greek gods, the divines, you know, but it, it, it meant the, the, the men that had studied the scriptures and came up with the Westminster documents. And uh, what I've given you there is my handy-dandy overview of our whole PCA constitution. And it consists of four things. You might like to have a, a map, you know, like you have a map of Columbia and it doesn't show you, you know, where every Kinko's copies is, but you, you know where the, all the main roads are. So there are four parts to our Constitution. One is the Westminster Confession of Faith, and it says what it is. It's a confession of faith. It's what we, we believe. Now, it takes a lot longer than a minute and 20 seconds to say it, because they're by, the, by 1500 and some, well, I actually wrote this in 1630. The confession was published in 1645. And by this time, there were a lot of issues that were disputed in terms of because of the Catholic doctrine and all the barnacles that have grown on the Catholic ship over the years and would have grown on our ship too if we'd been 1,500 years old perhaps. But so the Confession of Faith handles a lot of things and puts a lot of emphasis on a lot of things, but that, that's what it is. It's, a conf it's also a confession. It's not a creed. I guess creed, I think, is more like uh, bite-sized. I mean, you know, creed, you, you can't have a, you know, a 15-page creed. You know, it's just like, we, 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 that's all we'll do in the worship service if we say, that creed, you know, so we have a, a shorter thing that's all, that's the basics, but you, we have a longer creed because there are a lot of different heresies that Satan has tried to introduce into the church, and to reaffirm what does the Bible teach on all of these things, the sacraments, the nature of the church, the nature of free will, stuff like that. And so on there, on the, on the confession of faith, I put down what, what are the 33 chapters, 
Then there's uh, things called catechisms, and this was something that the church had done kind of historically because people weren't readers. They're not readers now either, are they? But they couldn't read, and there wasn't anything to read anyway, even if you could read. I mean, there just weren't scraps of things floating around. There was no newspaper. There was no printing press, you know, for 1,500 years, the first 1,500 years of Christianity or 1,450 years. So the way you would get people instructed was you'd uh, use other means. You'd use memory work. And the way the catechism is, is, you know, question and answer. So I ask this question, and you learn this answer, and you, you start them off when they're kids. I think, think that's normal. You know, anything you do with somebody when they're four years old, they think, well, that's just the way you do it, you know? So if you have them memorizing verses, they think, well, don't all four-year-olds memorize verses? And if you have them sing Bible songs, well, they'll sing Bible songs. And it's only later on that they realize, hey, other people didn't do that. So if, uh, if you'd started, you know, four, when you're four years old or you're with your children when they're four learning the uh, catechism, uh, they'd know it all today, whether they wanted to or not. I still remember stuff from the Episcopal Church. General confession, we thine unworthy servants to give thee most humble. Well, that's the general thanksgiving. But anyway, uh, so they would use the uh, shorter catechism more, probably more with, with children and the simpler, but the larger catechism was in greater detail. But it's their, it's their teaching tool. And then finally, the book of church order, which is just how do you, how do you run the church? You know, how, how are decisions made? Who are the officers? How do they get to be officers? Uh, who can be a member? What, you know, what do you need? So it's basically how to, how to run things. So what do we believe? How do we communicate it? And how do, how do things run? That's, that's our constitution. Uh, but as you, if we just go back, just thinking about the confession, as you read the confession, they make a big deal about some things, and you think, why do they keep going on and on about this? And then if you look at it, and you think, well, but there are a lot of things they don't talk about that much that I think are important things. The Bible says a lot about it. The Bible, for example, has maybe a, a thousand great verses on prayer. The Confession doesn't even have a chapter on prayer, I don't think. And it's in the Catechisms, just going through the, uh, the Lord's Prayer, mostly. And they think, well, they could have said a lot more about that. Uh, but again, like we said, saw with the Nicene Creed, they were speaking to some specific things, and you, you never talk equally about everything. You know, when you uh, address your kids, or if you were going to get up and talk at a, an assembly at the, at the local school, you know, since you can't possibly say everything about everything, what do you do? You make a selection. And how do you make a selection? Well, what's most needed? And so you speak to that. And they say, well, but isn't this also true? Yes, it is. Why didn't you talk about that? Well, I can't talk about everything, and this seemed more urgent. And so they, we see that the confession is weighted in certain ways. And one of the questions I had as I went to it was, I wonder what questions they were answering. So this is the solution they came up with. What was the problem, if that's the answer? So that's what we want to look at today. We want to explore and see if this makes any sense at all. Okay, this is just my musing. So this, take this as the Berean Christians who would go back to the, and study and see if these things were so. But this is my little uh, diagram of it. And, uh, but as I looked at that, I thought, that looks kind of confusing. But what I want you to get out of this right now is, in the middle is the Reformed approach. And you see these arrows. Each one of those represents somebody trying to pull on Christianity to make it go a certain way, which if it really goes very far that way, it's going to cease to be really biblical Christianity. And so the people who are writing 
these documents for the, to serve as a constitution and a foundation for the church, uh, they had to deal with those things, those things pulling on them, and the way they dealt with it was the, uh, the truths that they, they built in there. But we're going to look at it, we're going to cover it a different way that I came up with today. We would just want to take each thing pulling on it by itself so we can, okay? I've never done this before, so if it's not clear, well, we'll take it back to the drawing board for next time. Okay, so, for example, kind of issues. One of the issues that was there strongly was the issue of tradition which are historical issues. Traditions are things that just happen over time. There are some churches that says, we're not going to be traditional. So they are traditional in their untraditionalness. You know? It says, well, we're not going to use rote prayers read out of a book. So they use rote prayers that they all say. And you realize they all pray the same way. They say, and Lord, we just, you know, and we just this, and we just that, and they must have decided this word just is holy. You know, the Anglicans would never say that. They got it all, you know, they've taken out all the filler. But when you have to make up all your prayers, you end up using stock things that you say again and again. So tr tradition has always been something that pulls on everything in life, but including the church. But by the 17th century, it was really strong because we've been around that long. So there was a particular way that the Catholic Church had decided that the, the service needed to be, the priesthood, confession, uh, the way you, what you do as far as monks and all of those kind of things. And what's pulling on you there is what we've done in the past. There are certain, there are time, maybe, maybe there's something you did three Christmases in a row that it was kind of a cool thing. Maybe Dad did breakfast three Christmases in a row. Well, what happens? If the fourth Christmas, Dad doesn't do breakfast. Somebody's going to say something. Like they feel robbed, you know? They, they lived all their life before that, and Dad didn't do that. But now we've, this is a tradition. And so what's the underlying assumption with a tradition? You've got to keep it going. And so that was what's going on. And because the Anglican Reformation, in other words, when they started getting renewed and getting back to the Bible and stuff like that, it happened because of who? The English Reformation. What king? I'm Henry VIII, I am. And he wanted to get, you know, marry another wife, and the Pope wouldn't let him. He thought, well, this is a great time to become the, in charge of the church. So that, uh, and, but as a result, his interest wasn't primarily how can we get the church in England to be more biblical? He just wanted a greater freedom. And so he wasn't interested in change. He just, he liked the idea of a pope if he could be it. Like someone once said, I, um, I'm against the idea of bishops unless I can be one. You know, I'm in charge. So the church for a hundred years in England had pretty much stayed kind of Catholic in a lot of ways. The Anglican approach to things was still for people that really wanted to say, let's just do what the Bible says. And they said, no, 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 you're still wearing, the priests are wearing these vestments and all these kind of things, and we don't see where that says that in the Bible. And so there was this kind of pull there. So there's the pull of tradition, what we've done in the past, and what, what are they pulling us toward? Man-made forms. It's something that just grew up over time. It's a good way to do it. Now it's the holy way to do it because we, we've done it that way. We've always done it that way. Groups that exerted this pressure on the Roman church and in, in England, it was also the Anglican church, now, here's where we're going here. The biblical principle 
that is in this confession that's to deal with that pressure. And it's called the regulative principle. This particular principle is particularly uh, directed at the way we worship God. And uh, how this helps us maintain God as our king. Because whenever these things are pulling, if they pull hard enough and get you to go far enough, God somehow is no longer in his position as the ultimate authority and king over the church. So the conclusion was, let's just let God tell us uh, how to worship him. And if he didn't say it, we don't do it. And I mean, like I said, there are churches that uh, they've come up with some really creative things to do in the worship service, like do a, a thing. And it ends up being like magic and superstition and this and that and the other. And, and so this uh, reformed approach, or which was really just trying to be a biblical approach, doesn't mean they're always right, but it's their attempt to, to be biblical, is a very safeguarding kind of thing. Well, there's a denomination that does foot washing. I don't know if they do it every service, but they do it a lot as an act of worship. And so we wouldn't, we wouldn't approve of that. Uh, I, I think uh, probably we could, we could sneak it in there every once in a while if we we're teaching on John 13 and we say it's just a visual aid and you know, to help you understand it. But we wouldn't use it. Say, now we're, let's worship God washing each other's feet. No, the Bible doesn't say that that is a standard way to worship God. So, uh, well, Let's look at the second set of things here. This is one I couldn't figure out the best word to use, but the kind of issue is one of, of jurisdiction. In other words, who's in charge? Political issues. And as far as what are the things pulling us here, what our rulers say. In this case, they had a king. So, I mean, it, you know, it was a little... In, in America, we get to vote, and, you know, so you, it's just all handled differently. But nevertheless, the government's trying to get back in there, isn't it? In a lot of ways, and is in a lot of ways. So there are political things that pull on the church. What do they pull us toward? Man-made limitations. You can talk about God and everything in the church building. But uh, there's some, there, in India, for example, they want to pass a law, an anti-proselytization law, that, in other words, you can't go out, if you go out and tell anybody about Jesus, and they respond, you both go to jail. Or at least you do. So, it's man-made limitations. You, you, can, you can do this, but you can't do that. You can do this, but you can't do that. And so, the, in England in particular, they were dealing with that. Have you ever heard of nonconformists? Well, the, uh, they were the people that says, we're not going to go to an Anglican church. And they would meet in their home, you know, where there's no vestments or anything. And a, and a minister, would, a nonconformist minister would come, and they would do basically like a Presbyterian worship service, minus the organ. And there were periods of time when they were horribly persecuted for doing that. I mean, you could go to jail for 10 years as a minister uh, because you went to somebody's house and uh, gave a little sermon, they sang a hymn, and you did the Lord's Supper because you were nonconformist. You weren't conforming to the Church of England and doing it the way the government said it had to be done. What are the groups that exerted this pressure? Well, in the, in the Catholic context, it was the Pope, and in the English context, it was the Crown. And there was a, period of time, a couple of periods of time where an English monarch would arise that would try to get them back into the Catholic fold, since they hadn't come out that far anyway. You know, I mean, they still had a lot of things that were, it wasn't going to be too big of a culture shock if they did go back. But by now, there were, you know, a good quantity of Englishmen that were saying, 
I think that's a great idea to just do what the Bible says. Why don't we just do that? So there's this point. Now, what was the biblical principle that they came up with and expressed in different ways in the Westminster documents? It's the concept of freedom of conscience. And I just had asked Dr. Hodges today to try and explain that again to me. It's one of those things where somebody explains it to you and you got it, and five minutes later it fogged over again, you know? But the idea is, is that God only, uh, whether we believe in God only as the ultimate authority. He is our ultimate authority. And so if God says it, then that's the way it is. But if God didn't say it, the example I was given was, uh, the Bible nowhere says you should never take a drop of alcohol. Now, you might arrive at that through other means of, well, the law of love, because there might be somebody that would stumble, et cetera, et cetera. But, but as far as a, a direct command, it's not there. And so applying this would say, well, neither the government nor the church should say, should bind the conscience. Well, no, the government could, but, but, the, but as far as the church, the, freedom, the idea of freedom of conscience is, is that the church shouldn't basically tell everybody what to do unless they've got warrant in the scriptures to say it. And so what they did in England, they were saying, well, the king says, we have to go to these particular church buildings to worship. And he says, we have only one king, and it's Jesus. There was a national covenant up in, signed up in, up in Scotland when the, the king wanted to make sure all the people up in Scotland did church the way he said. And they signed this big, cute little covenant, you know, that, that basically said, we only have one king, and his name is Jesus. The way our, um, uh, the book of church order is prefaced, the very first page of the book of church order is, Jesus Christ is our king. That's the whole first part of it. So, and this has affected the way America was founded. See, up until this time, all the other countries, there was a state church. And it's because of these kind of things that the founding fathers said, no, we believe in freedom of conscience, and we don't believe there's any government that should go and tell all the churches what they need to do as related to matters of, of, of God. You all have to be members of this denomination, or you have to believe this. or You mean like the Council of Nicaea. Who called that council? The Emperor Constantine. I mean, like, what are you doing here, you know? But he was just trying to get everybody to get along, you know? I mean, it affected so much the Roman Empire. Okay, the third uh, kind of a thing that pulled on Christianity, was pulling on Christianity in England at that time, and to this day does, is emotionalism. And these are ex experiential issues. Well, I saw, I, I've heard things, you know, I, I, I uh, had a dream and I went to heaven. And, uh, you know, they might say, you know, might have, who knows what they've seen and who knows if they... Did they did see it, and who knows if it's... I mean, we're not, we don't necessarily know either way. It's an experiential kind of a thing. But what's pulling us there as a church is how we feel. And we all feel things, you know. We all have things we've done in the past. We all have rulers. We all have feelings. It's not as though these things are in themselves bad, but they're not supposed to be behind the steering wheel of the Christian faith. God, there is a God, and he's spoken. And so this is trying to hang on to the steering wheel. There's other people are grabbing it and saying, Let, no, let's go right. I could, why? Because I feel it. So what, no, let's just, let's just, what does the Bible say? You know, you're trying to hold on to the steering wheel. 
And uh, what do they pull us toward? Man-made revelation. Well, God told me that this person needs to divorce that person and get married to this other person. It happens. Man-made revelations. The groups that would, are, would have exerted this pressure, and still do sometimes, is the sects and, and certain types of, nowadays, certain types of Christian churches that put a heavy emphasis on God told me this and that or the other. All that we do is believe that God still speaks to us in a guiding, illuminatory kind of way, in a providential way, but not in a what we would term a revelatory way that you'd say, well, we've got to add that in our Bible. We were talking about that the other day. But that God guides us in different ways, providentially. And so, in a sense, he's talking to us, but not, not in a revelatory way. We believe that all of that kind of revelation has uh, ceased and it's, and it's sufficient. So the biblical principle that protects us against uh, from going the wrong way with what we feel is the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, that the Reformed approach, and the we believe is a biblical approach, is that what God has given us in the Scripture is enough. I mean, it doesn't mean that we're not going to also trust Him to fulfill His promise in the Scripture that He'll lead us. So it's not as though, well, Anything he's going to say to us, he said to us. Well, we believe that, but that we do believe that God is going to guide his people. He's a shepherd, and he's the word, so he's a communicative sort, and we need it. You know, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So we open up the scripture, the Holy Spirit moves in our hearts, and the thing just comes alive. It's just wonderful. And how this principle helps us to maintain God as our king is believing that God only is speaking to us through the scriptures. And that anything we have that comes to us, the Bible says, test all things. How do we test it? Going back to the Bible. What does the Bible say? And fourth, the kind of issue of humanism. Uh, these are intellectual issues. And this is, deals with what we think. We all think stuff. I mean, it's not as if we're going to stop. Don't feel anything more. I mean, you know, wasted words. Don't think anything more. Well, God gave you both feelings and a brain. But everything can be misused. And, could, and in, our, in terms of our faith, could pull us off in a direction that there's plenty of wrecks back through history to realize that wasn't a good idea, obviously. Even if you didn't know what the Bible said, just look at how it all turned out. So... The thing that's pulling us here is what we think, and that pulls us toward man-made opinions. One of the things that, if you ever talk with a Jehovah's Witness or Mormons, they say, well, the Trinity can't be true. Well, why not? Because I can't understand it. And God would not have done something that I couldn't understand. And you think, well, how do they understand Isaiah 55, that my thoughts are not, not your thoughts, and as high as the heavens are above the earth, so my thoughts, well, duh. You know, I mean, if he's an infinite God, do you think? He's going to insist on not doing anything that I can't understand. That would be like saying as a, as a parent, anything that my three-year-old can't understand, we just won't do. He doesn't, well, he doesn't understand anything. You're not going to do anything. You're going to starve to death. So it pulls us toward man-made opinions. Uh, groups at that time that were, that were affecting the church were the Arminians who said, no, man isn't totally fallen. He, he does have within himself the capacity to respond to the grace of God. It's not God's sovereign election, even though the Bible seems to say that. That's not what it was, because that would be mean of God, so it can't be true. That thinking, starting with, uh, my starting, the starting point is my thoughts, rather than what does God say, 
and then I get used to what he said. Rather than think, well, what, what I think must be true, and somehow he says that here. And I just, give me a little more time, and I'll, I'll show you. And also the deists. Um, this was actually as, as a little bit later than the Westminster Confession, um, because it, it kind of got kicked off with Isaac Newton and uh, Kepler and all of those things. And then in the, real big in the 1700s was the deistic movement. But again, it's the same idea of, uh, of more of a man-centered approach and what seems reasonable and rational to me, and then going back and saying, how can we get the Bible to say that? Because it must be true. And the biblical principle that protects us here in, uh, from having a man, a, an overly man-centered approach to Christianity is the idea of sovereign grace. When we say sovereign, that just means God is the king. He's in charge. He's in control. And how could he not be if he's all-powerful and all-knowing? I mean, like, what other alternative is there? If he exists in all time, in all space, has all answers, knows everything, actual and everything even that was even possible, that won't ever be, but he knows all the possibilities. He has all power, all patience, all character qualities, how's he not going to be in control? He says, well, there's a section I leave just for chance, just for fun. You know, I, I kind of like games of chance. And Well, if the Bible said that, you know, doesn't say that. He says, not a sparrow falls to the ground, but your heavenly Father knows. He keeps track of every hair on your head. Man, this is amazing. He knows the end from the beginning. He's not biting his nails, saying, oh, Oh my goodness, there are a couple of things I left sort of to chance, and who knows how they're going to turn out. This could really be bad. He is in complete control of everything, including somehow our salvation, but not in such a way that we're reduced to puppets or marionettes or anything like that, and not in such a way that he is in any way, in any way, not in the slightest way, unjust or unloving. We'll have to wait to get into the hurdles because we want to talk about things that will help us feel better about it all. You know, because there are a couple of things in any approach to Christianity that are troublesome. And so our approach, too, has a couple of things that if you did a survey, 80% of the people would say, well, I kind of like it all, but, and what would they say? I'm not so sure about predestination. I'm not so sure about baptizing babies. I don't know why I pray if, you know, they, you know, you've got your hurdles, and that's what our last four weeks is going to be about. So you don't want to miss it. So, God's sovereign grace, that's the biblical principle protecting us, recognizing that God in his sovereignty and in his grace carries out our salvation in a mysterious and wonderful way, and he is the one that accomplishes it. And because of that, as they said in Latin, soli deo gloria, only to God be the glory. That's the basis of, of our Praise of him and our humility about ourselves. As they say about the door of heaven, you know, that over the front of it is whosoever will. Anybody can come. Sure. Do, yeah, but there, no, it doesn't matter. Whosoever will may come. Him who comes to me, I will no wise cast out. And you pass through that arch and you look back over and it says, chosen before the foundation of the world. So, well, how do you do that? I often, I used to like to do magic tricks as a child, you know, which is all just illusions, you know, you just, uh, it looks like you're pushing the pencil through the middle of the handkerchief, obviously you're not, but, you know, it mystifies people. But it's as though God does magic. I mean, in the sense of, he says, 
You can do anything you want. It's free will. You can come to Christ or not come to Christ. The offer's there. And he's like the magician, you know, rolls up his sleeve, puts his hands behind his back. And uh, this person comes to Christ and the other person doesn't. And when it's all said and done, they realize, he, you know, he's got it written down here. You know how they, the magicians will write down ahead of time what number you're going to pick or stuff like that? Well, he's already got it all. And you have no idea, how, how did he do that? Because your choice really and truly was completely free. So, going back to our overview then, you see that this reformed approach was not developed in midair. It had a historical context, a political context, an intellectual context, an experience, so that some of these things that sometimes you wonder, well, I wonder why they, they came up with that and made, made a big deal about it. It was because they were addressing some specific things that we may or may not experience in the same way. Now, most of these areas, obviously, you know, we're still going to have political issues, and we do. And you're probably getting emails about certain things that are political things. We have our historical issues and, and things with tradition, although since we're not relating to another larger body or something, maybe, maybe we have a bigger problem than we realize, but, you know, it's not, we don't feel the traditional pull as much. But we, we do have a, a pull toward man-made opinions and intellectual issues. And then, uh, again, Presbyterians tend to weed out much troubles with the experiential side. You know, we, don't, we get less than our quota of people that actually can feel something, you know, and, and enjoy it. But, uh, uh, but it's, I, I view us like we're the ASHA, the, the safety inspectors for the body of Christ. You know, we're, we're the careful kind, and don't climb up on that step ladder, it might fall. And, and uh, I almost feel like, though, sometimes it's like, we don't want the baby to put his finger in the socket, so we cut off his fingers. And it's like, well, you know, we, can't we find some other way to protect the body of Christ without losing something important, you know? Uh, and that's also something I want to get into. But I one time asked, uh, again, my source, Dr. Hodges. I said, Dr. Hodges, what if somebody came and said, God spoke to me last night and said, uh, I am the Lord and I'll be your God forever? Well, point number one, it's what the Bible says anyway. So, I mean, in a sense, God's already said it. And if you want to say it again, that's fine, you know. And it might be just so they remembered a verse. But secondly, just suppose. I mean, it's real dangerous, in my opinion, if you, get, if you box yourself into a corner where you, you're kind of telling God what he can do and can't do. Like, he won't do any more miracles. Well, then something so like a miracle happens and you're, you're stuck. Why? You've either got to say it wasn't true, but a lot of times the, if the evidence is such that, it, well, it is true. Okay, we've got to discount that. Okay, well, it was psychosomatic. But sometimes that, that takes a lot of faith to believe that was psychosomatic. It's like, uh, and the only other possibility is the devil. Because we've already told God he can't, can't have done it. Do you realize what I've just described? The unpardonable sin. Jesus did miracles. And according to the theological construct of the Pharisees, can't be. Can't be God. The only other supernatural power that exists is Satan. So it's got to be the devil, and God says, you will never be forgiven for that sin. You have attributed to the enemy what the Holy Spirit did. So we don't want to, we want to be careful. I mean, here we are, Asha, you know, the uh, safety guys, let's let, at least be careful there, you know, <laughs> and uh, reserve judgment. But uh, the way he said it, this professor said it was, he said, I would view that as a very strong providential illumination. <laughs> 
So that, what that means is, you would take it back to the Bible. What does the scripture say? Test all things, approve those things that are in accord with this word. If it's anything that the Bible doesn't speak to, like uh, you need to marry this person. Well, you need to get counsel. You know, there are other, other ways of confirming that the Lord really did say that or not. Because otherwise, if you develop too much the idea that a person, that any thought that comes into their mind that they like, because you know this, they'll make a distinction there. If it's something they don't like, it must have been the devil. But if it's anything that they like and happens to affirm what they were already wanting anyway, they may end up down the wrong road. I'll say the, the basic position of our denomination, if I understand it correctly, is that we don't believe that God speaks anymore today in an authoritative, revelatory, infallible way, which technically would need to be added into your Bible. We do believe that God illuminates and guides, and sometimes maybe it was his choice of words and we would have a different choice of words. But anybody that's walked with the Lord has felt like at times that God has guided you on what you needed to do. And who are we to tell God that if he wanted to lead somebody with stuff that they couldn't have known any other way? I mean, I don't know that it's ever happened to me, but God is, can do anything he wants. But we're not going to run the church that way. That's why we have a plurality of elders, and what one person says is, well, if God told this leader, we, you know, we have a session, let him tell everybody else too, you know? and let it be confirmed in the scripture and stuff like that. Because there are some things like, well, should we paint the sanctuary purple? One guy's got a word from God. It should be purple. Well, nobody else has gotten this word from God. And so we have a, a instead of fighting over it, we, we, we have a whole set of things to go through. And, uh, you know, maybe sometimes it's cumbersome. And maybe we're not as open as we ought to be sometimes. Uh, but it is the way the Lord's led and, and blessed us. And, None of, none of our Presbyterian leaders would ever say, God told me this, and I know this is, I'm 100% sure this is what we need to do. They just wouldn't say it that way. They would say, I've been impressed that. I really sense that God is leading this way. They would always insist on stating in a, in a fallible way. I could be wrong. And what they're look, looking for is, does the body of Christ confirm this or not? And other, whatever other things, you know. Let me go through a last thing here. Any approach to, well, this we're talking about Christianity. So any approach to Christianity has its strengths and weaknesses, its strong points, its weak points. Uh, a more experiential approach has the advantage that people's uh, feelings and emotions are affirmed, and we do have feelings. And uh, usually they can enjoy getting more excited than we normally get. And... Uh, you know, the human race in general likes that. They do it at parties, they do it at football games. You know, I mean, it's not something that just a few like to get excited. But our way of doing it, the Reformed way, also has characteristic strengths and weaknesses. And I wanted to, and I feel like if you don't understand what are the, the weaknesses that come with your territory, then you'll be prey to them. Again, this is some ponderings of my own, so take it as for whatever it's worth. But one of the strengths of our approach is it's very centered on God's Word. And we're very happy about that. Our, I believe, a corresponding weakness is we're not as centered on the Holy Spirit as maybe some other approaches would be. Doesn't mean we can't improve and couldn't do well. 
It's just that left to our own, and if we just kind of like cows walk down the road doing things our way, what oftentimes will be less emphasized is uh, the Spirit of God. You notice that in terms of, like I said, in the confession there's not even a chapter on the Holy Spirit, like, hello. <laughs> so, I mean, he's kind of mentioned in the Trinity and stuff like that, but the Bible talks about him a lot, and we are trying to be biblical. So, this is a, sometimes a weakness. We are strong in study, not necessarily as all the members, but as far as you can't even join the club of presbytery unless you know more than an awful lot of people ever wanted to know about all kind of things. So we're heavy on study, and that's great because, again, we're focusing on the Scripture. We're characteristically weak in prayer. We were in a church in Argentina where it was the other way around. They never studied. They read bits and pieces. They, they studied like we pray. But um, Wendy would go to this women's meeting, and they would have a meeting every Wednesday night, sing and have a speaker, and they'd have how many? When it was just that, 20? Seven? Okay. But then one time they said, this next Wednesday, we're not going to have a speaker. We're going to fast all day and meet just to pray. And how many came then? Oh, 30, or 40. 30 or 40. Like, we're really going to do something now. We're going to fast and pray? I mean, how would that go here? Uh, take any, any activity that's normally singing, teaching, uh, study, God's Word, preaching. What's the attendance? And then one, just one week, shift it and say, we're all going to fast all day long from the night before and just pray. What would happen with the attendance? So it's just a, a, a tends to be a weakness. Doesn't have to be, but it's a tendency. So one of our strengths with our approach is humility. One of our weaknesses is pride. Go figure. Why are, why are we humble? Because God did our salvation. I didn't earn anything. It's all Him. It's all God's grace. And we're pretty proud that we figured that out. And all these other people, they still think it's by works. One of our strengths is we're thorough. It takes forever to get ordained. It took me 23 years to get through seminary. And they said, no, no, that's not enough. You have to take six ordination exams and write three term papers. We're thorough. And there are a lot of good points to that. That's, uh, you know, you get what you pay for, and we've paid a lot. And we're thorough when it comes to making decisions. We're thorough in terms of taking minutes at Presbyterian session. You know, we got it all. It's all there, man. We're thorough. None of this slipshod, you know, fly by the seat of the pants. Uh, the, weak, the corresponding weakness that is we are slow as molasses. And so in parts of the world where the, where the kingdom of God is just exploding, we can't keep up with it. This happened in the, in the United States, but I don't have time to tell you. Okay, another strength is uh, that we're confessional, and that means we have a statement of our faith. We've all agreed on this is what we believe, uh, and we're not innovative. We're not always coming up with it. Well, what's the new doctrine of the Holy Spirit we can invent? Just kind of tack it on there. No, we're not innovative. The, the corresponding weakness is, is we tend to be backward looking. Yes, but is it what the confession says? Rather than always, is it just what the Bible says? I mean, maybe we need to rethink that. Truly reformed means you truly always go back to the Bible and see what does it say. Not that you just go back to the confession or our documents. And one of our weaknesses, we're not innovative. And so we tend to be a little more traditional than we realize, even beyond what, what does the Bible actually require. You know, we've gotten to the point where, if, if you know, uh, we're just used to sitting for worship. We've got pews, we've got chairs. I mean, in the Orthodox Church, they always stand the whole time. Well, we don't like that. Must say, we're, we're seated with Christ in the heavenly place. We're going to find some verse on it because we don't like that. <laughs> 
And we're not, we're not innovative and we don't approve of the people that are. And uh, finally, uh, one of our strengths is we're unemotional. And the corresponding weakness is we're unemotional. The pros and chosen. So uh, in our two minutes that remain, I want to remind you that for these four weeks we've talked about what is the heartbeat of the Reformed faith. And it's that God is great and sovereign and in control. And that means we can rest and relax and not have to live a life of worry. We can live a life of humility and praise for him. And secondly, that he's spoken to us in the scripture. And everything in Reformed theology tries to derive everything from those two things. A sovereign God and an inspired sufficient scripture. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13 says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. By saying the, we try to be biblical, it doesn't mean that we necessarily accomplish it. That is the intention. By saying we're trying to be biblical, we're not trying to say everybody else is unbiblical, or that we're right in everything, they're wrong in everything, we're all we all see through a glass darkly. We're trying to understand better. And there are a lot of things we can learn from the different parts of the body of Christ. So please don't misinterpret what I'm saying to say that we're the only ones that are right. There are a lot, like I said, in, in a lot of these weaknesses, we're wrong, at least as far as how we live. And we can do better. And some parts of the body of Christ call us back to parts that we missed in terms of uh, putting this Bible uh, that the Word would become flesh in us. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for these men that uh, worked so hard to come up with the, the statements of the Reformed faith, in particular the Westminster Confession, Lord. And we just thank you they weren't trying to be Presbyterian. They were just trying to be biblical. And uh, all human attempts at everything is imperfect, Lord, but uh, we do want to acknowledge you as the king, our only king, and our divine sovereign in charge of the world and that for some reason has decided you want to take your time up with us and love us. And thank you so much that you are not mute. You have spoken through the scripture. And I pray that we would follow in the tradition of the good tradition of, of men and women of God all through the centuries that have gone back to the scriptures and say, yes, but what did God say? And to try to come back to that and live it in spirit and in truth. Thank you so much for these four weeks, Lord, and we look forward to our future times together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us on Bringing Truth to Life. If you like our content, please subscribe and give us a review. This helps more people find our podcast.